Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, producer of the show, and we of course are bringing the heat today. We've got another really great one. As you know, this month we're focusing on the mind and mental health. We had the amazing Dr. Rick Hansen and Forrest Hansen on two weeks ago. Last week, we of course had Dr. Caroline Leaf. Be sure and listen to those if you haven't already. And today, we have a brand new friend joining us, an amazing conversation with Sarah Fay. She is an award-winning author and mental health advocate. She has a brand new book you have to check out called Pathological, The True Story of Six Misdiagnoses. We have a very candid conversation about her personal experience of being diagnosed with six different mental health disorders. And after finding no relief, this led her to investigate the diagnoses, which in turn led her to write this book, Pathological. We really love this book, so make sure you check it out. Hey, if you haven't already done so, I want to encourage you to go to typologyinstitute.com. That's T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y institute.com. Become a Typology Institute member, and every month we give you a special podcast that we in turn have a town hall discussion where we get to do Q&A with you, with Ian, every month. It's a super cool community. Check that out, typologyinstitute.com. Hey, that's it for me, Anthony Skinner. I know you're going to love Sarah Fay. I know you're going to love this interview. And now, without any further ado, here is the host of our show, Ian Cron. Sarah Fay, author of the new book, Pathological, The True Story of Six Misdiagnoses, Enneagram 5. We are so glad that you are here. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like, as I said, I feel like I know you from listening to the podcast. Oh, well, thanks for listening to it. And uh, we're honored that, that you do. You know, um, I'm going to tell a story that I mentioned to you before we hit record. Last week, I read a book titled Pathological, The, the True Story of Six Misdiagnoses. And I bought it at Parnassus Books because as a therapist, I saw the title and I thought, oh, this looks really interesting. So I took it home. I read it in two days, right? And um, I told Annie, I said, man, this is a really great book. And I told her all about it. And she's like, oh, yeah, sounds fascinating. And uh, then I got up this morning early to review our show notes for mm-hmm. what we were going to do today. Right. And I, I scrolled up and I see this photograph. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's Sarah Faye. I just recognized your photograph from the back of the book. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm actually interviewing this person whose book I read cover to cover last week. And I flipped out. That's hilarious. I loved the book. So cool. I love that. I know. Talk about synchronicity, serendipity, coincidence, all colliding in in one moment. Uh, So anyway, I, um, I know that you're an Enneagram 5, and by the way, I will admit that I kind of figured out you were an Enneagram 5 when I read the book. Did you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did, and we can talk a little bit about why I had that suspicion uh, as I read it. Um, you uh, have an interest in the way that people categorize themselves, which ties to the book, uh, but you say to make everyday life easier. 
What do you mean by that? The way I see it um, is that the DS. So, are, do you mean in terms of mental health diagnoses in particular, or just no, in terms of life? Just in terms of life. Like, what? Why yeah. is it? Why is it you think that people are interested not only in character, you know, categorizing others, but themselves as well? Well, it's so refreshing to see myself as you know a five, and to say, yes, that's me. Absolutely, that's me. And to feel validated in what I love to do, which is definitely research. I'm an investigator. That's who I am. I mean, I spent six years in a PhD program in the stacks back when you used to have real books. <laughs> and I, you know, I always joke that I missed the Obama years because I was just in a PhD program doing research. And that's one of my favorite things to do. So being able to look at, okay, this is my personality. This is a way for me to gauge who I am, my likes, maybe my dislikes, my weaknesses, my strengths, it can be a guide. Let's put it that way and make everyday life a lot easier. Mm. And what's so cool about the Enneagram, and uh, I think when taught correctly, there's a humility around it, right? It's, it's, there's a, a, a way of saying, this is a low resolution picture, right? This is not uh, a description of the totality of this person, because we're more than just our personalities, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but it, it just gives us a framework for understanding the ways that we typically act, think, and feel from moment to moment. Now, you, I want you to explore with me a little bit more about consolation, because I love that word. What is it that so, was so consoling for you as a five? Is it because I think, is it because, and I'll just throw this out, female fives are often so misunderstood. It could be. I think because, well, one aspect of it that I've heard and read, I mean, because you can find contradictory information on what is a five exactly um, sometimes, but one thing that I really identified with is that I am a solitary creature. Mm. Um, I, you know, that I am that person in the cave with books, <laughs> you know, my books are all on Kindle now, but that you know, that is who I am. And as you said, as a woman, that's not really how you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be gregarious and outgoing. And I am when I'm out, but I really love being in. Um, so that consolation, I think, also comes from aspects of the personality or, you know, the type that maybe aren't as accepted um, in American culture. And even if it's the shadow side or not, being able to look at them and accept them and even love them, you know, for who you are is something I really gravitate to. Mm -hmm. The other thing I just wanted to mention that I learned from your show was just how the Enneagram is really about self-knowledge and transformation. And that was really interesting for me, having been in the mental health system for so many years, because there is self-knowledge there, but there isn't a lot of transformation. Right. Mm -hmm. you, you kind of get tagged a type, you get a label, and then that's it. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't take that next step. And I love what you say about stories, and we can talk about that, obviously. Oh, yeah. I love that because <laughs> I'm all about sort of a narrative approach to the human condition. You know, um, you know, how do we, wh why do we tell stories about ourselves to ourselves and to others to make sense of our lives? Um, and Maybe that's why we, in part, read fiction, right? Is that we're fascinated mm. with stories. And 
Anthony, something I'd learned after I read this other book, This is Happiness, this week, which is an exquisite novel for those of you who haven't read it yet. Read it yet. It's called This is Happiness. But in it, the, the, the narrator says, essentially, we tell stories about ourselves to make sense of our suffering. Mm. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's so true. Yeah. And when you think about it, isn't it interesting that when we ask people to share their story with us, they spend large, a large amount of time talking about their suffering. Mm-hmm periods of times that were so hard and which is what you do in your book your book is really built around your suffering and the story of your suffering right yeah so i mean uh i love everything that you're saying about enneagram fives i wonder though if you experience yourself as a person who collects oodles of information and data and knowledge around specific subjects as a way to fend off feelings of inadequacy and ineptitude. Do you ever connect that? I, I don't like that part of it. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, I mean, I can see that there are over 500 footnotes in my memoir and memoirs aren't supposed to have footnotes. Okay. So talk about going above and beyond and being cerebral and intense. Like I've got it. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, I think one thing when I was writing the book is because I talk so much about the mental health system, I was really worried about seeming inadequate. I'm not a mental health professional. And so who am I to come out and, and have, so I knew I couldn't just say things about the mental health system or diagnoses. I had to back it up. And I, you know, I kind of geek out on that. So it, it went a bit, got a bit intense for sure <laughs> with over 500 <laughs> citations. <laughs> I did think that because one of the things I, I do when I read a book, in fact, the first thing I do before I read a book mm-hmm. is I read the, uh, the bibliography. Mm-hmm. I want to know what they read. And if I know what you read, I have a head start on knowing you, you, you know, it, mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in many ways, right? So, well, I'm thrilled that you know the Enneagram. I'm thrilled that it, it's helped you. But now I want to jump into the book because I think a lot of our people, you know, we do these live town halls. A lot of people come on. They have been diagnosed as ADHD. They've been diagnosed with a personality disorder. They've been, you know, on and on and on. And they're just trying to figure themselves out. And they've been to a million hours of therapy. Can you just give us the arc of your story and what you learned and um, what you discovered? Um, yeah, so I was diagnosed at 12 with anorexia, the eating disorder. And I, at the time, was my parents were divorcing and I was going to a new high school and I was extremely sad and I was terrified. Mm. And I had a stomach ache. I had this black pit in my stomach, is what it felt like. And I didn't want to eat and I really couldn't eat. So yes, I was getting, my weight was dangerously low. And at one point I couldn't hold down food or water. So my parents reacted in exactly the way they should have. They took me to our pediatrician and our pediatrician weighed me and he looked at my mother and he said, anorexia. And that was, first of all, I'd never heard the word once I learned what it was. That was really the point at such a young age to get a diagnosis like that. I started to attach all of my thoughts and feelings and, you know, my fears and my sadness to a diagnosis. So I was kind of, I was really already in the system, but what was different about my experience, I think for some people is today, 
is they were often, they're immediately put on medication. And I wasn't, I was really a seeker. I mean, I was the investigator. I tried everything. So in my twenties, um, I lived in New York city and I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder at the time. I mean, I was walking, I was trying Chinese herbs that tasted like something that had died. Like it was <laughs> unbelievable. And, you know, I tried yoga and meditation and everything I could. Um, I was later diagnosed with major depressive disorder. Then in my thirties, I was diagnosed with ADHD and then OCD. And then finally, in my 40s, I received a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And at that point, I was really in crisis and I was suicidal and had been. I couldn't live independently and I lived with my mother for five years. And what happened next is kind of um, was remarkable in that I was, as I said, in crisis. My sister swept in um, in my book, my family. They're the heroes of the book. And I think anyone who's been through mental illness or touched by it knows the families really go through hell and they are the heroes. So she swept in, found me a new psychiatrist. I went to see him. We had the quick you know, consultation um, session. And at the end, I waited for him to declare what I had next. So did I have bipolar disorder? Was he going to give me a new diagnosis or reify the old one? And he looked at me and he said, I don't know what you have. And my whole world shifted. I was like, oh my, no one knows what I have. That was 25 years in the mental health system at that point. And I remember I walked out of his office and it was in Chicago. We were having a polar vortex. It was just brittly cold. And the whole city looked different. Like everything looked crisper, like the spindly trees with no leaves and the snow. And I just, um, it looked harsher too, though because I thought, what, what are these diagnoses I've been getting all this time? Like, what has been going on? And I, have, I don't even know what they are. I don't know where they come from. I know very little aside from what I read on the internet and what my doctors have told me. And so that's when I started to embark on this very five <laughs> mode and I threw myself into research. And, and you, know, you know, being the investigator, it really saved my life. I was extremely mm-hmm. fragile at that point. And research was my lifeline. You know, for some people, it's it's contact with other people. But for me, it really pulled me out of suicidal darkness at that point. So I'm so grateful to it. And then and I started writing the book soon after that. Mm. It's an incredible journey. And I want to recommend to everybody that they read this book, Pathological, The True <laughs> Story of Six Misdiagnoses by Sarah Fay. You do not have to have been trapped in the mental health system. Uh, to really appreciate it because it's a memoir, it's a story, but interwoven into that story is this terrific research. So actually, sir, I feel like I got two books. I I feel like I got your um, story and then I feel like I got a research uh, piece that could have been written without your story that, you know, looked, I mean, it's, it was so beautifully done. And I, and, and here's the thing I think, and maybe we can talk about it in a moment, but, you know, we've had such a mental health crisis in the last few years and, you know, more and more people are going to see therapists. They're going to, they now, are, you know, there's all kinds of therapy opportunities online. There's companies that are hooking mm-hmm. people up with therapists, blah, blah, blah. This is a really important time to read this book. Mm-hmm. If you're starting to see a therapist and. Yes. Okay. So will you just tell people what the DSM is? Because lots of folks aren't therapists. They may not know what it is. Yeah. And I just wanted to speak to what you said about my book. First of all, thank you. That means so much to me. And that's what I did was basically I decided, okay, I wish I'd known 
everything I found in the research that I did. And so I told my story and then sprinkled in surreptitiously everything people need to know (laughs) in order to make more informed decisions about their mental health. So people who don't want to read any research, like it's just in there. And and one thing I hear and that I love is people read it in a couple of days. Like it's just a, a really quick read, which is what I wanted. And that's remarkable considering how much research is in there that can get very dry. But I knew I wanted to communicate to people what the DSM is, which I didn't know either. I didn't know until I started researching the book. I mean, 25 years in the mental health system, and I'd never heard of what's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, otherwise known as the DSM. If your eyes just glazed over, don't worry. That's <laughs> sort of how I felt. You know, it was, it's just like, it's sort of a, um, it sounds too technical, but all it is, is a book. It's a manual. Um, and so it's a medical manual, or it's, it's thought of as that for psychiatry. And in it are all the mental health diagnoses that we receive. And so to give you kind of a visual picture on the top of the page will be major depressive disorder. And then underneath will be a list of symptoms and you have to qualify for five of nine symptoms. And that's kind of unimpressive, uneventful, certainly not controversial in any way. But what I didn't know is unlike medical manuals and physical medicine, the diagnoses found in the DSM are not based on science. They are opinions. And that shocked me more than I can say. And it unsettled me. So if anyone listening feels unsettled and like, whoa, I don't want to hear this, I, I know how you feel. I was very... I identified very strongly with my diagnosis and as someone with a diagnosis. Um, But essentially what it is, is it started in 1952 and a bunch of primarily white men sat around a table and came up with 128 diagnoses. And the book has since been revised. Um, We've had seven revisions now. And those over those revisions, the number of diagnoses has increased. And so we now have 541 ways to be diagnosed. So 128 to 541. Um, So it it is designed to diagnose as many people as possible. And I didn't say that actually Robert Spitzer did. And he was one of the main guys who really was the architect of what we know of as mental health diagnoses. But to give you an idea of what I mean by their opinions, Robert Spitzer, when he was asked, why do you need five of nine symptoms to be diagnosed with major depressive disorder? He said, it was just arbitrary. We went around the table and four seemed like too few and six seemed like too many. Mm, wow. That is the same criteria we use today. <laughs> so I'm not overstating <laughs> that when I say that they are opinions. And oh, my word. That was really um, very difficult for me to find out, obviously. And then I just wanted to know more. Um, not to get rid of my diagnosis, mind you, and I'm not asking anyone to get rid of theirs. Uh, diagnoses can be very fortifying. They can help people. They give us access to care. They're necessary. And I want to be clear about that. Um, for me, they were just not helpful. Um, they just didn't, they, I, they became self-fulfilling prophecies for me. And that we can talk more about that and, and what that means. But it was, you know, that like diagnoses in and of themselves are not a problem. And then also to just to be clear, and I always want to make this clear when I appear somewhere is mental illness is very, very real. And you can imagine it like an umbrella and underneath that umbrella is the DSM and the, you know, the manual that we use trying to categorize what is mental illness. So I'm not at all questioning mental illness in any way. I had one, I've completely recovered 
They now know that no mental illness has been proven to be chronic. Um, that's what my next book is about. I'm writing it right now. It's the sequel. <laughs> so about how I recovered. Um, but that is a way to think about it. So the only thing in question are the diagnoses and labels we use, not mental illness itself, just to be clear. Mm. You know, it's interesting because one of the things I kept thinking as I read it, right, read the book is, you know, as a therapist, in fact, I was looking this way for my DSM. It's somewhere on my shelf, but I just moved into a new office. And so I, I can't see it. it must be on the floor. You know, the um, in some ways, you, if you were overly, I think, overly cynical, one might think, well, the only reason we have a DSM uh, is so that we can have a code right? A, a numerical code that we can send to an insurance company to, uh, to say, look, this is a, uh, a, a diagnosis and therefore it's reimbursable. My services are reimbursable, et cetera, right? I think that's a little too cynical uh, just to see it that way because I know as a therapist, though I don't have a private practice anymore, that it's helpful when you see uh, a a constellation of traits, behaviors, ways of thinking, acting, and feeling that seem to be common among a segment of the population. So let's say you get a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, right? Well, you do see among that population uh, a yeah, pretty consistent traits that play themselves out, um, that damage relationships, that's a, a sort of a key criteria, you know, that it's interruptive or disruptive to relationships, I should say. Um, and it gives us something, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like you need something that you can enter into a conversation with somebody else about or another professional about, and then they just go, okay, boom. All right. What do you, so that's my slight defense of the DSM. What do you, what do you think? No, you're absolutely right. And, and again, I'm not, I don't want to throw the DSM out the window. I've been in touch with some really wonderful people. So one is Alan Horowitz. He's a DSM scholar. Um, There's my DSM. There, <laughs> that's an older one. Um, yeah. And so, but as he says, the um, we're kind of stuck with the DSM. It would be very hard to suddenly go to a new system. But to your point, there's no question that that's true. And, and again, I don't think diagnoses are a bad thing. They were originally started in the 19th century to give doctors away in, in uh, insane asylums, is what they were called at the time, to give doctors a way to communicate with each other. That's what they were for. How can we give this patient treatment? We're going to classify it, as you said, as this, given, you know, they didn't go quite so far with symptoms and traits as we do. But what's interesting, and I found this out, is patients didn't know their diagnoses. You didn't know. And so this idea of it being a self-fulfilling prophecy or what concerns me now, especially being having gone through what I went through, is seeing it on social media and young people self-diagnosing on social media and TikTok therapists and it being such a huge part of our culture. One theorist calls it the psychiatrization of culture, of American culture. And so it's so much a part of how we identify and process our mental and emotional lives and that was not helpful. It became a way not to process my emotions and my thoughts and my behaviors. Mm. It became like everything's just because of my depression or everything's because I'm bipolar. Note, I am bipolar, not I have bipolar disorder. I mean, I was it. It was me. Mm. And so what's, what ha what's happened now is I actually, I have a diagnosis. I am still on medication. Please get treatment if you need it. There's not, you know, treatment is necessary and I want everyone to have access to it. 
Um, I still see my psychiatrist, the I don't know psychiatrist. He's very transparent about the flaws in the DSM with me and we talk about it. He knows he's in the book. I don't think he's going to read the book. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, so that, you know, that's still very much a part of my life, but I don't know what the diagnosis is. I could call right now and find out what it is. But if I knew, I would start to do what I did, which is, okay, I'm waking up. I'm suddenly weirdly anxious. I feel like I'm cracking inside. Nothing's gone wrong. What is going on? I would say it's because of my anxiety disorder, or this must be mania. I must be going through a manic episode with bipolar disorder when you're you know, hyperactive. And now I can't do that. So I have to go, okay, what's going on? What's going on in my life? What's happening? Am I overextended? Am I not sleeping? Do I need some water? Are my thought, you know, have I done, you know, I do kind of a, a written thought meditation. Like, have I not done that? And so I really have to answer to my feelings and my thoughts and, and my behaviors in a way that I didn't have to when everything was because of a diagnosis. Okay. So I'm over here writing notes furiously. So I'm not, I always tell guests, I'm not checking my texts. I'm looking off to the side because I have so many notes that I've, I've already written. It's so interesting. I say this in my workshops, but I'm, I'm always hesitant and I give a lot of the same disclaimers that you just gave. So let's look at the nine types just for a moment. When um, oftentimes, let's say at their most unhealthiest expression, right? In their most, ones could be diagnosed as having obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Twos with histrionic personality disorder. Threes with narcissistic personality disorder. Fours with borderline personality disorder. Fives, we, I can't remember what the new name is. We used to call it schizoid personality disorder. I yes. can't remember the, what the schizoid name is. affective disorder now. Yeah. Okay. Then, then um, sixes with paranoid personality disorder. Sevens with like ADHD or narcissism. Eights with uh, oppositional defiance disorder, right? And then uh, nines with either ADHD or with dependent personality disorder. And so you see what happens is, what happens, I think, especially with little children is you go into an office, you present as an Enneagram 2, you're bubbly, you're emotional, you're, you know, um, uh, sometimes seductive, you know, which Enneagram 2s can be when they're not doing great. Um, and you're labeled something. Oh, well, this person has histrionic personality disorder. And I'm often like, I don't know, maybe it's just their personality. Yeah, like when you were going through that as a teenager, it was such a complex situation and he just labeled you. Exactly. And, you know, I love that you just went through that. And, and the, so we were talking about consolation, finding consolation um, in Enneagram types versus DSM diagnoses are only negative. Mm-hmm. There's only shadow. And that's what I have a problem with there. I mean, there are certain communities. So some diagnoses, autism is a great example of a diagnosis that's really positive. That community, I mean, they rally around each other. They get services for themselves. I mean, it is a great source of pride. They have changed the conversation, neurotypical. I mean, it's, it's really an example of where DSM diagnoses are about strength. But that's the only one I can come up with. And so if the others are really just all negative traits, and that is like, as I was saying, there's no transformation there. That's it's just right. a dead end. It just, oh, okay, I'm this and I'll never change. That's what yeah. I was left with. Yes. And we're going to circle back to that. Anthony, remind me because in a way, 
diagnoses are a story that we tell ourselves and others about who we are. Mm -hmm. wow. And that's problematic, mm -hmm. right? That's really problematic. We have a friend, uh, Anthony and I, and we're not disclosing anything that he hasn't done our podcast and he often talks about with his clients and to large audiences. So I don't feel bad saying this. He has Asperger's and um, he really, in a strange way, delights in it. Like it has really helped him as a therapist. Um, oftentimes his sense of humor about himself is amazing. <laughs> you know, he'll go, well, there was an Asperger's moment, you know, because, you know, he does stuff sometimes that's kind of goofy. Like he'll, he'll be in the middle of a conversation with someone he barely knows and he goes into his Donald Duck voice, you know, and you're like, oh, oh, Mike. You know, and uh, uh, but he'll then walk out and go, well, then that's that, you know, that's what tiggers do, you know. Um, and and I kind of love it about him, and it has given him a quirky kind of genius, mm. you know, um, that I that I really love. So, you know, having been trained in the medical model, I was trained that when a person walked into the office, and no one ever said this, but this essentially is what it came down to was you pathologize them. Right. You you say, OK, I'm looking for the pathology, looking for the pathology. Right. And now as an older guy who has worked with people for a long time and this comes out of the, you know, the positive psychology world, you know, I've learned to sort of look at, OK, where are the resources here? Mm. Where are the gifts? Where's the positive things we can draw on and bring to the fore um, as a way for this person to move through the world with more emotional intelligence and happiness? And, you know, and I, I say all that because one of the things I'm picking up from you is that the perhaps the first doorway through which you found personal healing was in actually letting go of all the labels. Yes. And and also, and this is why I want everyone to read my book and every, you know, my psychiatrist actually says that every medical resident should read my book because then they'll know what it's like to be on the other side of, mm. of being diagnosed, um, is that it was also knowing the flaws in them. So I wasn't just rejecting something that someone was trying to give me that can help, but I understood two things, which really shocked me. And one is that they are not scientifically valid, meaning they have no objective marker. This should have been obvious to me, right? I was never given a blood test. No one could show me on a scan. Here's your brain. This says that you have bipolar disorder. And I, I, but I never thought of it. And so there is no way to prove someone that I have bipolar disorder if someone tells me I do. It is simply my self-reported symptoms, which are opinions, and a clinician's opinion based on a book made up of opinions. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's what we have to use. Again, what's wrong for me is that people don't know that. And so um, I was actually recently um, interviewed and I had the, the good fortune to be interviewed with Thomas Insull, who was former head of the mm -hmm. National Institute for Mental Health, and Paul Applebaum, who was chair of the DSM steering committee, like the head of the DSM. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to get into a rumble with this guy, <laughs> like what's going to happen? But they were really, really wonderful. And, and when I said my issue is not, you know, it is with the DSM, but it really is that psychiatry knows way more than the public does about the diagnoses that the public is getting. And they deserve to know the truth and at least be able to say, okay, someone's saying my two-year-old has bipolar disorder. Maybe I should take this with a grain of salt. You know, I mean, that's just so uh, out of my frame of reference. And to have people be able to say, 
this doesn't, this doesn't feel right. You know, wait, you're telling me I have anxiety disorder. I'm, I'm not sure that doesn't, that doesn't quite sit. And I'm going to get a second opinion or a third or a fourth mm-hmm. or take some time away or whatever it is instead of immediately going to the diagnoses. So my project is really about awareness and just making sure that wanting to empower people, patients and their families to have all the information. So we aren't just getting these diagnoses without having all everything that we need, all the knowledge that we need. That's such a five thing to do. <laughs> right. I, you know, a lot of times fives aggregate lots of knowledge and information and they hoard it rather than share it with other people. Um, they hold on to it. Uh, and by the way, once they get to the bottom of everything, then they tire of it and move on to another topic. Right. Like fives can get bored. Like they'll figure something out all the way. And then they're like, okay, what's next? You know, and they move on. What I love about what you've done is two things. One is you uh, shared personal information. I mean, you are very vulnerable in this book. Fives don't normally do Mm -hmm. that. So rock, (laughs) rock on Sarah, because you put it all out there on the table. And for a five, that's an act of great love. I, that's what I, that's how I would put it. Um, and secondly, um, you shared the information and you also did it in a way that wasn't so clinical and academic that you, the regular person couldn't understand it. Right. So great. So, yeah. It's just genius. And by the way, everybody, I'm just going to remind you again, I'm talking with Sarah Fay, author of pathological, the true story of six misdiagnoses. If you have, here it is, folks, on YouTube. There's the book. It's a great cover. Please make sure to read it because I know so many of you are, well, you wouldn't be listening to this show if you didn't have an interest in the workings of the human mind and heart. Uh, I know that lots and lots, if not 98% of you are in the mental health system. You're, You're seeing therapists, you're seeing psychiatrists, you're making decisions about medication, you're... I want you to read this so that you can have a better Mm. understanding of this foreign world that you have now walked into, that you might have a a bigger, better, more informed understanding of what's happening in the world uh, around you that that you you need to know. You just absolutely need to know. Because here's the deal. (coughs) When you get tested for diabetes, they can give you a blood test. Uh, they can look at your self-reported symptoms, but they can actually test it and then scientifically validate it. It's not an opinion that you have diabetes, right? It is a fact that you have diabetes, right? That's not the case when you come in and a doctor says you have major depression. Now you might, I'm not saying you don't. However, you have to hold that diagnosis lightly. And not just, you know, throw it on and then over-identify yourself mm-hmm. with that diagnosis because you've just locked yourself in a room and thrown out the key. Yes. And I think the other thing that that's important is, you know, none of this would even be an issue and I wouldn't have written a book about it if, let's just say, psychiatrists and the most trained people in the country, in the world, were the ones using these diagnoses. But the reality is, and this is why my book is different, um, it's different in many ways, but my situation is more of what most people are experiencing now, which is that five of my six diagnoses came from uh, primary care physicians, not mental health professionals. 
So yeah. they didn't come from psychiatrists. So my book is not at all anti-psychiatry or anti-psychology at all. I'm totally pro those things. Um, but mine came from family doctor or my GP. And it came during an annual visit after 15 minutes. And that's what's happening now. So GPs prescribe 80% of all antidepressants. They also prescribe 50% of all antipsychotics to children. Wow. Meanwhile, according to a U of M's, a University of Michigan study from 2019, less than a quarter of medical schools offer more than 12 hours of psychiatric training to GPs. 12 hours. That's like a season of, of Grey's Anatomy. You know, like, what are we, you know, and so, and, and I don't mean to make light of it because they're also trained in the most in inpatient care. So not the patients that they'll be seeing the most severe symptoms mm. and they are trained to give a diagnosis. Um, mm. And again, you know, there, the other issue is that when they were asked, how do you feel comfortable giving, you know, giving a diagnosis? Most of them said very comfortable. So there's a disconnect. You've got people who aren't trained feeling very comfortable giving us and our children diagnoses. And that's something that we need to kind of, and one thing I really recommend for everybody, and this is a luxury, but if you get a diagnosis from a GP and you can see a mental health professional, preferably a psychiatrist, do get a second opinion. If you can't, because a lot of people don't have that access to care, ask your GP to consult with a psychiatrist and verify yes. the diagnosis. So that's something, and I know it's hard to question our doctors. <laughs> I agree, I'm that way too, but those are two things we can do that will really make a difference. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting to say that years ago, um, I, I had a client, this is many, many years ago, and um, he came in and uh, was reporting something that sounded like a depression, right? I'm not an MD. I happen to know a guy, this, he was at Yale. Uh, I was living in Connecticut at the time. And I said, you know, I really want you to see a guy. And I said, I don't want you to see your GP. Because I said, you know, a GP, you know, is going to throw 20 milligrams of Prozac at you, which I could do. You know what I mean? If I had the license to do it. Uh, and, you know, he's going to say, you know, pat you on the shoulder and say, hope all is well. Right. So I sent this guy to him, man. And this guy was brilliant. He was like the best, actually, actually the best, the most renowned expert on bipolar disorder in the country at the time. And he looked at him. He just looked at him, right? And he just noticed uh, some feature. I can't remember what it was. I want to say he was a young guy and he had, I don't know, some. Anyway, he said, you don't have a depression you have a rare endocrinological disorder and one of its symptoms is depression. And they treated that and the depression lifted. Oh my word. Now, if he'd gone to most GPs as ah, you're just depressed and missed the deeper diagnosis that only a really great psychiatrist who, by the way, has kept up on the literature, which tons of psychiatrists do not mm. Um, so I'm always looking around for a psychiatrist, usually at hospital, at, at university hospitals who are involved in research, who really know this stuff, because otherwise, you know, someone's going to slap a label on you, give you the, the drug that, you know, everybody wants, says, this is the one that works. It could be the, you know, the drug du jour, by the way. And now this is an important thing. And this was so revelatory for me. Talk about big pharma, the DSM. 
and the relationship between diagnoses and, you know, you know, yeah, you know the question I'm asking. I do. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just want to preface this by saying that I am not anti-medication. There mm-hmm. is a kind of a, a trend that's been going on for a while, and it certainly hit me when I was going through this, which is pill shaming. This idea that somehow you're weak if you take medication or something is wrong with you, or you should, the only way to be healthy is to go off of your medications. The problem with that is if you're like me, I've been on, you know, my medication for over, I guess it's almost 14 years now. A lot of the medications that we get were only tested for three months. They were only intended for you to be on them for three months to get you out of a bad patch. Um, so it was never tested how long you could stay on them. And there's very severe withdrawal side effects from trying to go off medication. So please do not ever try to go off. I did, and it was horrible. I almost died. I will never try again. <laughs> I shouldn't say never, but I don't, I'm not looking to, to do that. But I just want to be clear about that. That said, big pharma or pharmaceutical companies have a very um, sort of sinister relationship with the DSM and the mental health diagnoses. Their involvement in mental health diagnoses is really unsettling. (laughs) So I just want to, you know, warn everybody, but, uh, you know, 70% of the people who authored the most recent edition of the DSM. So they are the ones who came up with binge eating disorder and prolonged grief disorder, which is new and, they 70% of them had ties to big pharma, meaning that they are, their research is funded by pharmaceutical companies. So it's not as if pharma, you know, pharmaceutical representatives are in the room creating diagnoses, but they do other things. And this was the most shocking to me. They're called disease awareness campaigns or market the diagnosis. And what happens is, so I'll give you a very specific example. In 2001, a company called GlaxoSmithKline had developed a drug called Paxil. It was an antidepressant and Prozac was the drug. It had stolen all of Paxil's thunder. They had no market and they had to come up with another diagnosis for Paxil to treat so they could create another consumer market. And they got, they flipped through the pages of the DSM and they found this very obscure diagnosis called generalized anxiety disorder that affected 1% of the population. It's now the most common diagnosis. Okay. And it's upwards of 11, maybe 17%, depending on what statistics you look at. But they ended up getting approval from the FDA for Paxil to treat it. So it's also an anti-anxiety. And what they did, which is both sinister and brilliant, is they didn't market Paxil. They marketed generalized anxiety disorder. And what they did is they create fake patient advocacy groups. They also fund patient advocacy groups. Um, And those advocacy groups then popularize the diagnosis and they pay doctors to say, all these people have this diagnosis, but they don't know it. Um, And so that is just a couple of the ways that pharma is involved. And the only reason why I'm not anti-medication besides the fact that I'm on it and probably will be for the remainder of my life is that since we know so little about diagnoses and what to do and how to help people with their mental and emotional suffering, I feel like, you know, if it's Enneagram work or it's meditation or it's walking or it's a pharmaceutical drug, whatever helps you, like we kind of have to just use all our resources right now is how I feel. You know, and you mentioned this in the book and I'll just moment of, of trans, you know, sort of transparency. I have been on the same medication uh, for 30 years, and it's saved my life. 
It really saved my life. Now, um, I will tell you a story. I literally did my own. I was going nowhere with doctors. And I was really suffering for, you know, a couple of years. Mm. And uh, it, was de- it was sort of a mixed state of anxiety and depression, right? So I was, having, I was depressed, but having anxiety attacks at the same time. You know, it's, they call it a mixed state. And um, I went to a doctor. I was talking to a friend who described the exact same experience, right? And it told me what she, she'd been diagnosed with. I went to my doctor and he went, oh, I was just about to suggest that that was your problem. So I was like, okay, I'm done with you because you're just stealing my thunder. I just told you the problem, right? And so then I went to see another doctor and he said, okay, well, we're going to try you on a couple of medications. They didn't work. Finally, he tried the last medication and it had a stunningly positive effect. Now, this medication is used primarily for one quote unquote diagnosis, okay? And uh, it completely, I got to say, it healed me. Okay. It's like it healed me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so what he did is he essentially backed into a diagnosis, right? He, he said, okay, this drug worked. Therefore, here's the condition probably, but we don't know. You're nodding your head, Sarah. What do you think? That's also the thing that happens, especially often with GPs, but um, this can happen with therapists as well, is that if the drug works, then it's confirmation that you have the diagnosis Mm. instead of you get the diagnosis and then you get the treatment. Because we don't have, I mean, the reason why mental disorders are not actually diseases, although they really wanted that to be the case, but there is no biological markers. As I said, there's no proof that any DSM diagnosis is biological or chronic. Um, And so, but what they essentially, you know, what they're trying to do is look at, they're kind of chasing their tails, if that makes sense. Um, So trying to prove the diagnosis with that. And the other thing that happens, and I mentioned therapists, is that it's also um, the diagnosis is justified by the behavior and the behavior justifies the diagnosis. So you have social anxiety disorder be- disorder because you do not go to public events or you don't like being in social situations. You don't like social si- being in social situations because you have social anxiety disorder. So again, it's that circle of, because we have no other way to prove it. Mm-hmm. What okay. I love though is there, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. You keep going. I love it when you say I love So I just love this one. Often, you know, we try to say, oh, mental illness or DSM diagnoses, mental health diagnoses are just like physical diagnoses. And particularly, you mentioned diabetes. We love that comparison. But it's really nothing like diabetes and it's nothing like cancer. I mean, we should treat them as seriously as those. And I think that's part of the, you know, motivation behind saying that. But what I love is the example of um, a broken bone that even having a psychotic break, even being in crisis, um, like I was, is like breaking a bone. And when the bone breaks, and I didn't know this, but in physical medicine, the point of healing, so the point where the bone had broken becomes the strongest part of the bone. Mm-hmm. And I just like that, that's now the controlling metaphor of my new book. Because I take that a little bit farther, which is that, okay, some people, the bones don't heal right. And you may always have a limp. And for some people, you may always need pain medication, you know, or Advil or whatever it might be for chronic pain. 
So there's going treat like recovery is going to look very different for each person. But right now we're treating them as lifelong and we're assuming all these things that we just don't, I don't understand why we think giving people hope would be a bad thing. Mm. I just don't understand how we could possibly take that from people. Yeah. And what if, what if, you know, you, you use the example of social anxiety. What if you went to a doctor and let's say it's not debilitating, but it's disruptive, right? What if you went to a doctor and, and he or she said, you know, well, maybe you're shy. <laughs> yeah. What if it's your personality, right? Instead of a diagnosis. So I think of Enneagram fives, lots mm-hmm. of Enneagram fives do not like to be at big parties. They don't like to be at places where there's a lot of loud noise because it's draining. There's too much stimulation in the environment. Mm. Uh, They don't like small talk. They feel uncomfortable with small talk, right? I could go on and on and and say that in many cases, they could walk into a doctor or psychiatrist's office and they Mm -hmm. would be be immediately diagnosed, not as a five, Mm -hmm. or in other words, I'm not saying that they should use the Enneagram in those offices, but instead of someone saying, well, that's just your the way that your personality is, and that's okay. And the sad thing is, is that it to be labeled with this condition prevents you from doing your work and moving through that, growing right. through that. You alluded to that a minute ago, Sarah. But if it's too disruptive, if you mm-hmm. can't go to the office, if you can't right. do your life, right. right? Well, then you might need, you know, a course of some kind of we call it anxiolytics or some kind of you know anxiety, you know, medication, which you, with which you have to be incredibly careful. But you know, it's it's. Um, you know, sometimes interventions are necessary for people to function normally in the world, sure. right? In a way that feels fulfilling. What you just brought up is so important, and I didn't know this, and it also came as a shock, is that the DSM can't define dysfunction. So supposedly a mental, you know, behavior, thought, and emotion and experience becomes a mental disorder when it's dysfunctional, but we have no measure of dysfunction. Wow. So for, well, I mean, we took Enneagram types, you know, a twos anxiety disorder is going to be totally different than an eights or something like, you know, along those lines. Um, But so not knowing that, again, what started, you know, it used to be that dysfunction, and this was in the 1990s, meant that you, you, you really couldn't work and you probably couldn't live independently. That was sort of the ballpark that they were working in. And now, and I often hear this, it interferes with my quality of life. Well, my cat interferes with my quality of life at the time. This is very needy and I'm a five and it's just like, I don't know which, which type you would be, but, um, but you know, there, so quality of life. I mean, to be honest, being human, all the emotions that are part of that interferes with quality of life. If you look at it that way. So that's another big problem. And then you also raised a great point, which is that most of the time when you receive a diagnosis and certainly all the time, I would, well, most, and most, most of the time from uh, primary care physicians or GPs is that personality is not taken into account and neither is context. Mm. So what troubles me is you've got kids growing up, you know, children of color growing up in economically deprived areas, and they're being diagnosed with ODD, which is oppositional defiant disorder. I'd be pretty angry if I grew up in that environment too, Mm -hmm. or sad or whatever it might be. And it allows us to really sidestep a lot of uh, injustices in the world, but also even just a person's own life. I mean, what do we consider justifiable grieving? What do we consider justifiable depression? You know, I, I grieved, and this is in the book, but I grieved for two years 
seriously grieved two, for two years uh, for my cat who had died and I'd had her for 16 years. Cat people will understand what I'm saying, <laughs> all the cat listeners. But, you know, that was not acceptable. And I was given a diagnosis of major depressive disorder. Mm. Um, so again, that context is just so, so important on so many different levels. Yeah, but when you only have 15 minutes with a doctor, they don't have time. Yeah. Right. No, they don't. Right. Right. And to be sympathetic, I mean, I have no idea what, what it could possibly be like to be a GP. You're responsible to know everything. <laughs> I mean, that's like, a, you know, that's so much to ask. And I did hear from a pediatrician who said right now, especially with the pandemic and the mental health crisis among children and teens, he said he's just overwhelmed. Yeah. He just can't even, you know, he can't even see everyone <laughs> that is asking for mental health treatment from him. Okay, well, this conversation could go on forever because I am having, <laughs> Anthony, am I having fun? Oh, yeah. Because I am now into my geek sort of space, right? Where I just love to have a conversation around topics like this one. But, you know, when I read the book, and I want to close up with this a little bit, let's be honest. And I think you would say this, okay? And I hope I'm not overstepping here. But, you know, I, I've watched what your life was like on that journey. And for lack of a better word, this is not terribly sensitive. You were kind of a mess. I mean, like I think that's valid. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very valid. I would agree. I right? called okay. myself that many so, times. So I mean, you know, you were really struggling, right, yeah. to hold it together, right? Suicidal ideation. You're living at home. You're having trouble at work. You're having panic episodes at the blackboard. I mean, you know, everything going on here. Uh, substance abuse, which, by the way, you you don't mention is one of the diagnoses. Because although, man, you were pounding it, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know if you... The only reason I didn't is one, I was never given it. And then the second one is that I quit so easily without any assistance. And so I thought, I just never thought of myself as an alcoholic. And so I've just never owned that diagnosis, I guess. Right. So, yeah. yeah. But I wanted to kind of give an example of where someone could be living very, you know, destructively. And I don't know if I was or not, but it did pass in time. I mean, mm -hmm. I did know I've got to stop. Like this right. is, this is not, I'm not going to. Well, well, and that may have been your own uh, self-treatment plan, right? I yeah. mean, that's, you know, for dealing with anxiety, with for other things, right? I mm -hmm. mean, that, you, you didn't need a script for that one. You could just go to the right. liquor store, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, but here's the thing. I think this would be helpful for people. You go through this journey. You're a complete mess. And now I'm talking with you, and here I see uh, an ebullient, apparently joyful, life-fulfilled human being. And I'm, you know, after all these diagnoses, after all these medications, after this, you know, you know, life is a, you know, a troubled, you know, as a guest on this troubled earth, you know. I mean, how is it now that what where can I say the word healing? Like what? How did you arrive at this place that millions of people who are a mess are trying to find? Well, that's my next book. So I'll have it for everyone in a much clearer way, more detailed way. But I really talk about it was very hard and it was a lot of work. Like you talk about doing the work all the time and it was a lot of work and it's a lot of work, quote unquote, every day. A lot of it has come from, for me, it was not, I mean, even, you know, I have a label, I have a diagnosis, but not having that be even a part of my life. It just was not helpful for me. And really having to just live my life as someone 
who did, I kind of see it as if we go back to the broken bone metaphor. I broke every bone in my body. That was what, that's, that's how much of a mess I was. That's what it was like. And so I have, I don't even want to call them limitations, but someone who broke every bone is not going to go bungee jumping probably, and probably not going to go skiing even. So there are certain things I don't do. You know, I don't actually travel. I mean, I, I will if I have to, but I don't do that. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't drink caffeine. I mean, I go to sleep at the same time, like a child, I wake up at the same time and, you know, I live a very quiet life and that's been really important for me and really necessary for me. And this kind of circles back to the constellation I felt when I read the five type and that that matched me because this has been so consoling for me. So I think one thing, and then there's a lot of other very, you know, kind of concrete things that I, that I do as well every single day. Um, writing the book and and this being me really trying to empower people to have more agency over their mental health has been huge. Having purpose. I mean, we know that to heal, and this I'm taking again from Thomas Insel, who has a new book called Healing, uh, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health. It's a wonderful book. But one thing he taps into, and this is a long history of um, people who've said this, but to heal, you need three Ps. You know, you need people, so you need support place, somewhere to do it, and purpose. Mm. And I had my family, and I had my mother's home, and I had my purpose became, you know, always was writing and teaching, but then it became this book. And now really just trying to, you know, more of a public awareness campaign and my, my nonprofit, the foundation, the public awareness campaign that I started. And that's made all the difference. But it's not like I didn't have purpose before. So I think anyone not having any one of those peas, you're not going to heal. And it's interesting. I live next door to um, essentially a transition home for people with serious mental illness. And so they're always outside smoking and I pass them every day. And I just think like, I feel such an alliance with them. And I just think, how could you possibly be expected to heal when you have no home? Mm. Like that's just unfat. I mean, how could you, that's just, it's not possible. I mean, I shouldn't say that. I hope it is possible for someone, but so I'm just always reminded of how fortunate I am and, and so grateful for what I've had. Yeah. And I think I want to, can you just give me those three P's again? Cause I think for everybody, yeah. and yeah. I know this is in the new book, right? Yeah, it will be in the new book. And it's also in a book by Thomas Insull and it's called Healing is his book. Um, but it's also, you know, I think you could probably look up the three P's or Google it and that would come up too, but it's people, place, and purpose. Mm. So we need support somewhere to live and be supported, <laughs> and, you know, because you can't just live anywhere. I mean, if you're in an abusive environment or a dysfunctional environment, obviously that's not a place of healing. So it's interesting because in the 19th century, they had their asylums, you know, there were really rehabilitation centers before psychiatric institutions really went awry and they started overcrowding mm -hmm. them. But there were music rooms and libraries and gardens mm -hmm. and the patients tended the gardens. And so I kind of joke without knowing my diagnosis and like living this very tranquil life, I'm basically living in the 19th century. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. anyone wants to visit, just let me know. <laughs> oh, I know we're about to close, but I just wanted to highlight something, Sarah. I know you said earlier you stopped over identifying with your disorder and along with that there were some real practical things that you were doing you were asking yourself what am I feeling have I slept what have I been eating I would love it if you could just give our listeners a little bit of a taste of that practice that checklist that rhythm of life that helped you move forward before we go 
Yeah. So what I do is every morning, actually, I wake up and I write a list of my thoughts just down the page on a pad. This mm-hmm. one, and I just write them in a list and I, lo- I briefly look at them and they are inevitably the most negative <laughs> possible thoughts. I mean, just really like bordering on, you know, and what's really resonated with me is evolutionary psychiatry Mm. and just learning that my brain is designed to keep me alive. That's Mm. it. It's not designed to make me happy. It's not designed to even, you know, it just wants to keep me alive. I have a very good brain that is hypervigilant and keeping me alive. And so it sees danger everywhere. Like Mm. don't open that email and that person's mad at you. And, you know, so knowing that when I write them down, I see, okay, this is brain warning of danger. I then crumple the paper and I throw it away. Okay. Got it. Like now we're going to go about our day. We know you've been heard. Like we've been warned of danger and now we're going to go. So that's one really practical thing I do. Um, In terms of emotions, I had to learn what emotions are. I mean, I'm 50 years old and I just learned last year. So that should have been taught to me. Um, But I didn't know they were emotion. They were sensations and vibrations in my body. Mm. And I get a lot of anxiety and I get, um, depression very often. And so they, I learned that they feel differently in me. And what I used to try to do was push them away, like push them away and I'd fight against them. And then they'd get, they'd get more power. But now what I try to do is just sit in them and I don't even have to stop moving, but like, okay, here's the anxiety. Here it is. Let's go. Okay. We're going to keep walking or whatever we're doing. And this is here. And we're going to allow it. I have sometimes tried to describe it. And this is something people teach, you know, that you give it like, if it has a vibration, is it fast? Is it pulsing? Um, Does it have a color? Does it have a texture? Does it have a like viscosity or something like that? Um, And that sometimes does help, especially if they're overwhelming emotions. So to give you an example, like anxiety for me is this like pulsing vibration really fast in my chest. And you kind of try to describe it like you are to an alien. And the ironic thing is if someone saw you, they'd think you were crazy. (laughs) Here you are like actually being sane. But um, so you would describe it as if to an alien anxiety, my anxiety feels like this in my chest and it kind of rises up into my throat. And Mm -hmm. um, so I do, those are just a few of the things that I do, but uh, I've definitely got an arsenal. So yeah, I love that you have those tools and I love to hear it when five say, Yes. I'm learning emotions yes. now. Yes. And I of course everyone can benefit from it, but I think for fives that's such an important message, you know, you totally can agree. learn emotions. Gives me chill bumps. Yeah, man. Absolutely. <laughs> the other you know what's so interesting that I didn't know is I thought of emotions as emoting like mm-hmm. you emote, like, so when you're sad, you cry. And when you're angry, you lash out. And it was all this very, and, and when I learned, oh, no, 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 they're just internal feeling your emotions doesn't mean expressing them necessarily mm-hmm. even. And I don't mean talking, but you know what I'm saying? Like cry, it, not that crying is not okay, but that you really start with just feeling what's inside you. And that was so new to me and so interesting. And, and it allowed me to kind of get close to it without like going too far. So good. Thank you so much for that added bonus uh, because it was, uh, that was a really rich answer. Yeah. All right, everybody. I'm talking to Sarah Faye and I feel like you're my new friend. You're my new friend. I just, I loved this book so much. Uh, Everybody it's called pathological, the true story of six misdiagnoses. It is terrific. Sarah, we have loved, loved, loved 
having we love it when enneagram fives come on the show mm-hmm. my two best friends uh from i'm talking 40 year friends are both enneagram fives they offset my very emotional enneagram four uh they, they bring me a much needed and critical thinking mind which i need from time to time to get me off of the emotional roller coaster um and sir do you where do people learn more about you and all that stuff so I'm at sarahfay.org, S-A-R-A-H-F-A-Y.org. And then I'm at Sarah Fay author, all one word on all socials. Great. Well, Sarah, peace and wonderful things to you. And so much, we just hope for so much success for this book because mm-hmm. as I mentioned, super, super timely as people rush into the mental health system mm-hmm. right now. And we didn't get a chance to talk about the state of the world and the culture post-pandemic and et cetera. Um, and, and just for them to become informed, I don't want to say patients, what are we going to call them? Informed broken bones. I don't know what to say. You know, <laughs> that's a terrible way of putting it. But Typology Tribe, remember this. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. May you have rest. Until next time.